we're continuing in this series that's called Relentless Truth. And, and the, you know, the reason for that title is because no matter what situation Timothy was facing, no matter how dire or what situation Paul was facing, it was, it was to be relentless about following the truth, teaching the truth, and, and standing against that which is false. We're going to go to the third of what's called the pastoral epistles because they were letters that Paul wrote to pastors. And this one is written to Titus. And so if you will, you can turn in your Bibles or you can read on the screen or um, if, you, if, you have the, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So, as always, whenever we come to a text, we want to remind ourselves of the context. We want to know, like, you know, who are these people? What's, what's happening? And Paul is writing to another one of his followers that he considers a spiritual son. And not just a spiritual son. This isn't just some, some kind of, like, you know, kind of like overly ushy-gushy kind of, uh, you know, relationship they have. But he's a trusted ministry partner. Just like Timothy, when, when, when Paul knew a church was in trouble, when Paul knew a church needed to be strengthened, he would send Titus to do it. He's a trusted ministry partner. And at this point, he's a leader of the church at Crete, and according to church tradition, even after Paul dies, Titus is going to continue to be the, the main Christian leader on the Isle of Crete. So Titus, in, in his own right, is a, is, a, is a minister for the gospel, you know, to use the word warrior for the faith. But Paul's writing to him, and he's probably writing to him in between 1st and 2nd Timothy. If you put these letters in chronological order, it'd be 1st Timothy, Titus, then 2nd Timothy. You remember 1st Timothy, um, you know, that's written when Paul was first imprisoned in Rome. He was probably under house arrest. Um, conditions weren't super dire, and he was being accused of things by some of the, by some of the, the Jewish religious leaders um, in, from Jerusalem. Well, he writes Titus after we believe he was released from that imprisonment. And he has about two or three years where he goes out and he continues to minister. Some people believe he went down to Spain and did a missionary trip uh, down there and planted churches. Um, but then, as we talked about, there, the, there's a, another persecution that comes on the church. And that, and that persecution is much worse because it's not because he's being accused of something by religious leaders, but it's because, you know, the Emperor Nero has gone kind of nuts, and he is, 
you know, blaming Christians for things in the city of Rome. Christians are being persecuted, tortured, imprisoned, slaughtered. Titus is written in that in-between period. First Timothy, first imprisonment. Second Timothy, second imprisonment. Titus, kind of right down the middle. And we can kind of see this in the language. You can go back and compare Titus and Second Timothy especially, and you can see there's a real difference in the language. There's no language here like Paul is saying goodbye. Second Timothy is full of that. But here, what does he do? Well, he sees that Titus is facing some of the same problems that Timothy was facing. There's weak leaders in the church because the church had not, had not chosen leaders well. Because there's weak leaders, false teachers have come in the church and they haven't been dealt with, they haven't been confronted. And then there were members in the church who hadn't been, hadn't been discipled, they hadn't grown in their faith, and so they're following after the false teachers. Sounds familiar, similar to what's happening in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to Titus, who's dealing with the situation there, and he begins by reminding Titus of who God is. And then he's reminding Titus of what God is accomplishing, and he's reminding Titus of how God is, has been using Paul, and he's been using Titus. And ultimately, he's going to keep going back as to this this focus on teaching the truth, knowing the truth, living the truth. And if you notice in verse 4, when he says, my true child, my true son, he says it's in a common faith. You know, John last week was talking about Christian friendships. And he was talking about how when we have Christian friendships rather than, than friends who just happen to be Christians, that, what, that what's at the core of our relationship is that we're on mission together. That it's our relationship to Jesus Christ and our desire to, to carry out his mission in this world that he has given us, that that's what is at the core of our friendship. Well, you can see Paul here. He's not just being sentimental. My true child in a common faith. Titus was, was there in the very early parts of, of Paul's ministry. When he writes the letter to the churches in, in Galatia, he says, Titus is with me. And then he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Again, there's this reminder of, of this of this faith that unites, but also that all of this is because of God's grace. That all of this comes from God, Father, Jesus, our Savior. And, you know, Paul starts his letter this way. And you got to believe that when Paul starts his letter this way, Titus is not looking at this and thinking, what's wrong with Paul? Why is he talking so weird? Why is he bringing up all this stuff? It's like, no, 
This is exactly what Titus expects Paul to talk about. Because again, what Paul is placing at the core of their relationship and at the core of the, of the instructions that he's going to give to Titus is the mission. And one of the, the points I, I want us to have in our heads today is when we think about our context today, one of the things that I think is weakening the church is that the church or many Christians in the church have forgotten the mission of the church. How do churches become more like holy country clubs? They forgot the mission of the church. How do churches become places where people just go because they've been going for years and years and years and their families have been going for years and years and years and it's the thing they do because they've forgotten the mission of the church? How do churches get full of people who come, come together because they say they have a common faith in Jesus Christ and yet they fight against discipleship? They fight against true unity in the church. They fight against being equipped. Oh, they don't fight like this. They just fight like this. They fight like this. That's how they fight. How does that happen? It happens because church after church after church, Christian after Christian after Christian, has forgotten the mission of the church. We have forgotten why God saved us. We have forgotten why he gathered us together as the church, and he wants us to be one body in Christ. We've forgotten it. Oh, we come up with our other reasons. Maybe this place makes us feel good. Maybe this place kind of gets us kind of, you know, able to face whatever challenges we have in the day, and, and you know, God does that for us. But that's not the mission of the church. We've forgotten that mission. And what happens when you forget the mission of the church is that you forget that we are getting ready to engage this world for Christ. If we're only wanting to study God's Word, if we're only wanting to know how to be a better Christian just for ourselves so we can be a better person, some of you, you love yourself enough that it's going to take you pretty far. You're going to want to be the best Christian version of yourself, which to you means just, you know, getting more, more knowledge and things like that, but it's all for you. But if we realize that God has given us this mission. It is not about me becoming more pious or more religious or having a more fulfilling life. That's all some stuff that does happen when we, when we follow Christ, but it's not the end. We are to be equipped and empowered to live in this world by living out a gospel that says you love your enemies by taking this gospel to the world around us, by being relentless in how we know truth, live truth, express truth, 
I mean, there's a lot of people like this is one of the first times in a long time, especially younger people, who have seen something like what's happening in Israel right now. It's the first time. You know, they, they hear about stuff here and there, but, you know, not, not in the news like it is now. They, sometimes when those things happen, you want to know what's really in your heart. What's the first thing that pops up? What is behind it? Is it revenge? Is it loving your enemies? Those of you who are a little bit older remember 9-11. What was your first thought? Revenge? The love for your enemies. I'm not telling you what the action should be. Actions are separate from what's in our hearts. But if we wait, if we wait too long, and then suddenly we realize there is a battle going on, and that battle is in our churches, and then we decide, okay, now I want to get ready, it's the worst time to get ready. Many of us as parents, even some of us who knew these things were happening, didn't take seriously enough the battle for our children's minds and our children's souls. Because it looked okay. They came to church. They professed Christ. They were baptized. They could recite Bible verses. They could do all these things. Some of them might have even gone on mission trips. But now, after college, they're out there living their lives, and God's not a part. The battle was going on here, and we didn't realize it. The battle's not just out there. It's here, too. The answer's the same. Relentless truth. We need to know truth. It would be nice to be able to have God's love so perfectly in our lives that we can perfectly respond to every situation. That'd be awesome. But we, we can't and we don't. We need to remember the mission of the church because then we remember the condition of the world that God has placed us in. Not to go and, and berate. Not to go and, and beat down. But to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into every situation. Paul uses this greeting to introduce all of this to Titus, to remind Titus of these things. And remember, these letters were intended to be read out loud. This isn't just a personal letter to Titus. He's reading this to the other people in the Isle of Crete. So, back in the text, we look in verse 1. The first thing Paul does is he reminds Titus and the people of the church at Crete of who God is, who Jesus is. This isn't just some generic higher power. This isn't just some generic God. This is 
the God, the God that we read about in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but he is there with Jesus Christ. It's very specific. And he doesn't unpack much more. He just says, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one sent out by Jesus Christ. That's all he tells us here. But he is reminding Titus that we do not do this on our own. We just didn't sit around in a think tank and come up with an idea of how we could expand, you know, the gospel and expand the church. And so we thought, hey, let's go to the Gentiles. No. He says, it was given to us. I was made an apostle. I was sent out by Jesus. It is under his authority, by his power. The second thing he says is, is that is he says servant and apostle. And that's not, that's not an accident that he says that. He could have just said an apostle. He could have just said servant. But he says servant and apostle. And I think this, this is very consistent with what we read in First and Second Timothy where, where Paul is not just concerned with Timothy getting the actions right or getting the words right. He, he's, not, he's not saying, hey, you know, execute the game plan, do it right. Instead of just that, he's also concerned about Timothy's heart. Because he knows when you get in battle with the false teachers, it is easy for that love that, you are, that comes from God that you're supposed to have for that false teacher, it's going it's to be compromised. And he reminds Timothy, correct with gentleness. I think Paul's doing something very similar here. By saying servant, he's, he's reminding Titus of the heart that we're supposed to have, that we are servants of God. We are not serving ourselves or our own interest. We are serving God. And from Paul's understanding, service comes from love. And then he says, we are sent by Jesus. And again, it's a reminder that we're not serving I'm not doing it the way I want to do it or the way I think is the best way to do it. I'm serving because I was sent by Jesus to serve this way. In our Bible study down, downstairs, you know, we, we, we've been going through Galatians and Paul goes over um, you know, Galatians and I, I'm going to tell you this, um, that if Paul was in a lot of modern Christian organizations, and they got Paul's resume, you know who they would have sent Paul to? They would have looked at his resume and go, man, you got this background in Judaism? You're a Pharisee, and now you're a believer? We're going to send you to the Jewish people because you know them. You identify with them. You can help them. But those of you who know your Bible know that God did not send him to the logical place. He sent him to the Gentiles. The people that when he was a kind of a hardcore Pharisee, people that he found to be disgusting, to be unclean, to even hate. He's, he's like, that's who you're going to, Paul. Paul's like, it's not, it wasn't my idea. And then he says, he, he, he reminds Titus of why we do this. 
he says in, in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. He's saying this is why we do this. We do this because, because God has is, is, is told us to go out and help call out those from every nation. It's for their faith and their knowledge of truth. He's bringing together these two ideas which we've seen consistent in Paul, both evangelism and discipleship, not either or, not discipleship only, evangelism kind of on the wayside, or evangelism only, which is kind of more in vogue these days. Get them to pray a prayer, dunk them, and then, you know, move on to the next person. No. It's evangelism and discipleship for the sake of, not just of the faith of God's elect, but their knowledge of the truth. And then he, he says this, he, he connects this to godliness. And godliness, again, it's more than behavior. It's, it's kind of like, it's, it's, the, it's the condition of your, of your heart. And what Paul's doing is he's actually laying out in a really short, short summary He's laying out, like, this is the ministry approach. This is what we do. We evangelize. We disciple. And because of that, the fruit of the Spirit comes in these people's lives to godliness, where they will do good works. From truth, the heart is transformed behavior changes it's not the other way around so many times like when when we are trying to like help especially say children and others we don't always care about their heart we just care about their behavior and i'm going to tell you kids know this kids figure it out that you do not care about who i am you only care about what i do and you know what they learn they learn to do exactly what you want them to do when you're around. Because there's this whole other life they have that you don't touch because you don't care about. Christianity isn't that way. Christianity doesn't just care about modifying behavior. Christianity cares that the truth of, of, of Jesus Christ that when it's received, that our hearts are made alive again, that they're made new, and through that, good works come. This reminds us that the transforming power of the Spirit, the way Paul talks about the transforming power of the Spirit, that it comes through the gospel, but that that gospel comes to us through evangelism and discipleship. And then in verse 2, he talks about that he also was this apostle, this servant, in the hope of eternal life. And the way he writes that, it's, he, he, talks about, he talks about the past. And he says, this eternal life, it's more than a hope. It's, it's you know, as I was saying on Wednesday night, it's not like how some of us who are Hawaii football fans on Friday were like, eh, I hope Hawaii wins. We don't really believe they're going to win. We just hope they do. 
Because if they do, we'll feel okay. But because he's attaching eternal life to the, to the never-lying God and his promise, it's more than hope. It's more than hope. And he says, he promised this before the ages began, before the foundations of the world. In other words, it's something that we have to to keep in mind, and Paul really needed to emphasize this in the first century, not just among Gentiles, but also among the Jewish Christians, that, that, that Jesus Christ was not plan B. He wasn't plan B. He wasn't like, okay, we're going to try this thing with Adam and Eve, and then we're going to see how that goes. Oh, man, it went bad. What's plan B? No. Jesus wasn't plan B. The church wasn't plan B. The the kingdom of God being drawn from every nation in the world was not plan B. It was always God's plan. He looks to the past and he says, the promise was made by the God who never lies made by that God before the foundation of the world. And then he looks to the present. And he says, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through preaching. I want you to kind of just keep those words. We're going to come back to those words at the end. But I want you to keep those words in your head. Where he says, manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted. But Paul is referring to the present. He says, my ministry, and he's really saying really the ministry of all of us as, as following Christ, and in the, the preaching ministry, the proclamation, that, that that's where we get, to, we get to experience eternal life now. Eternal life is not simply um, a duration. From from the Gospels forward, eternal life is, is talked about as much in qualitative terms as it is in quantitative terms. Eternal life is, is the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ that we can experience right now. And you might be going, well, you know, that's all great for Paul, and I guess it's okay for Titus, and, you know, we can throw Timothy in, but not me. I just want to remind you of things that Paul had said before. Go back to Philippians and then 1 Corinthians. Paul had told people, and he didn't say this out of pride. He, He just said it because he could with confidence say it to people who he knew would receive it in the right way. But he would say, be imitators of me. He's not saying be exactly like me, but he's saying in some of these things that matter most, be imitators of me. And in this case, Paul, as he's giving this greeting to Titus, and he's reminding Titus and the church at Crete of all of these things, 
you know, resonating in the, back, in, in, the, in the back of their minds would be that Paul wants us to be imitators of him in carrying out the Great Commission, in being on mission as his church. This should be like the heart cry of every Christian. It should be the heart cry of our church. Why should we want to be discipled? So that we can help bring the gospel to the world. Why should we want to be a healthy church? So that we can bring the gospel to the world. There are too many unhealthy churches out there evangelizing. What Christianity needs more of are churches that aren't perfect, but churches that, that, that are so in love with God that they are so in love with each other because of that love for God that they are living out the transformed life as the community of faith, and they're out there proclaiming the gospel. It's, it's different. It's different, you know, if, if you go to a church where, where the, the church is just people that are kind of cordial to one another. And they, they're not fighting, but they're cordial, and they do their thing, and they go home. You may or may not want to invite one of your friends to that church or one of your family members to that church. But if you, if you truly have this, this relationship with Jesus Christ and you truly embrace the mission that he's given to us, and, and our church was such that when, whether there were two or three of us are here or a hundred of us are here, that God's love was so evident that his truth was being proclaimed you would be like, I, I, my friends need to experience this. My family needs to see this. They need to be a part of this. Why be discipled? Why be a healthy church? Because it's our mission. It's not simply so we can have better lives. So we go back to this and we say, okay, so what does this say to us? We see what Titus, you know, Paul was saying to Titus and saying to the church back then. What does this say from us? Well, it's very similar. The first thing is what we do as a church, that our ministries, they must come from God. That's hard to know sometimes. Hard to know. One thing we need to know for sure is that if it comes from God, it will be consistent with his word. It might not be explicit in his word. There's a lot of things we do that, that you don't find, uh, you know, you don't find vacation Bible school in the Bible. You know, maybe the Southern Baptist version of the Bible, they put it in. But I'm pretty sure VBS isn't in the Bible. Wednesday night Bible studies, not in the Bible. A lot of stuff we do is not in the Bible, but is it consistent with God's word? Is it consistent? And one of the things we need to know is 
is not only is it consistent with God's word, but we need to understand his word properly. And not just interpret it properly, but actually understand when we're looking at his word, we need to understand his word is also a revelation of himself to us. So what we do needs to be consistent with God's word. I can tell you some things that we need to avoid. We need to, we need to avoid the thinking that, that it's only of God if it produces numerical success. We just can't escape it. We just can't escape it. It's just so part of who we are, part of our culture, part of our like mindset, that if I, if I tell you we're gonna have a sports camp in a month, and then after the sports camp, I tell you, 300 kids came and 100 gave their lives to Christ, you would immediately think God must have been in it and God blessed it. Maybe he did. But if I told you, you know, about 14 or 15 kids came and none of them professed Christ, but the gospel was proclaimed, you might be like, well, okay, we'll get them next time. You might even feel sorry for me. Like, we put in all that effort and we didn't get numbers. No. If all we want to do is produce numbers, I know a lot of ways to do that. We can't say a ministry came from God or is coming from God simply because it produces numbers. It needs to be consistent with God's word. It needs to be consistent with who he is as he has revealed himself in scripture. One of the ways that we're going to know that then, of course, always circles back to discipleship. Always circles back to understanding God's word and God's truth. And it and it also, it also comes from us being like constantly as Christians introspective and thinking about who we are in Christ and what we're doing. I don't have like ex- exhortations today. I have questions. And the question is whether you're involved in ministry or not, if you're just kind of one of the people that just kind of shows up, here's the question. Are you exactly where God wants you to be in your spiritual life and in your ministry? Or have you taken control of that for God? Because, you know, God's busy. So you're like, God, you're kind of busy. So you know what? I'm going to take control of how I serve and how I minister, and I'm going to take control of, of the discipleship thing. I'll, I'll set the pace. I'll do all of that. You don't have to worry. Go do other God things. No, our, our desire should be to be exactly where God wants us to be in our spiritual journey. And when we talk about discipleship, it, it either means we're being discipled or we are discipling others. 
or sometimes both of those things are happening at the same time. There was a time in my wife and I's lives when, when we, we had been in Hawaii, then we went to Texas, I went to seminary, and in the first four or five months, you know, we were, we were just jumping back into how life was in Hawaii. So busy, we had young kids and all this other stuff. And then we, we, we had this kind of bad experience at this church that we were serving at. And for the first time in our lives, we went to church and did nothing. We just showed up. And I told my wife, you know, this is awesome. We know it's not going to last, and that's okay. But God needed us to rest. He needed us to kind of heal from some of those wounds and to recover. I mean, in that year, so much had happened. And several months went by before we even began to get more involved in the church. And it was great. That was back in 97. If I was still at that church in 97 and I was still resting, you guys might be thinking, hmm, something not right about that. I think there are seasons in our lives where God does want us to rest and recover and to kind of be poured into but they are seasons. They're not permanent. Are we where God wants us to be, both in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth and in our ministry? The second thing we see, which is what Paul said in verse 1, we fulfill our ministry to call out and disciple the elect. It's kind of like part two of how do we know? How do we know that what we're doing is from God? Well, one of them is, again, it's consistent with God's word. But the second one is that it will somehow be fulfilling the Great Commission. It will somehow be connected to evangelism or even the kind of things to kind of prepare the way for evangelism by, by making connections with people with the purpose of evangelism, or it's going to go towards discipleship or some kind of equipping. Everything we do at the church should, should be that. Some of you know that I like to golf really poorly. Well, I don't like to golf poorly, but I do golf poorly. If I just said, hey, let's have a golf tournament, your first question should be, to be, should be, how does this connect to the Great Commission? How does this, how is this about evangelism, discipleship? If I say, we need to have a building campaign, we need to make a new building, we need to, you know, we need to, you know, put up a big, like, like, gym over there. Your first question should, to me should be, how does this connect to the Great Commission? How does this help us evangelize and disciple? How does it help us fulfill the mission that God has given us? Churches often get lost in this. They get lost. They combine that measure of success by numbers you're never going to hear me play this, this game 
But there are pastors who realize that if their church grows to a certain point and kind of plateaus, how you get a jump started to move again is you start a building campaign. You're not going to hear that here. If we decide we need to build, it's going to be because we need to build. It's not going to be some artificial way to try to get people interested. But people combine those two things, and, and, and you can tell because when they tell you what they're doing and why they're doing it, there's very little connection or it's only kind of a superficial connection to evangelism and discipleship. The third thing we see here, when Paul is talking about his ministry, and the, the verse 2 is more connected to apostle of Jesus Christ than anything else after it. But he's talking about how he's, he's been sent out and he does this in the hope of eternal life. And this is that as we carry out our mission and as we communicate our message, our message and our mission should be full of hope. What does that mean? Well, it's not just, again, that kind of, I hope it happens, but it's hope that's based in that this, that this hope is a promise from the God who is all-powerful, all-loving, never fails, never lies. We can go with confidence and bring the message of Jesus Christ to the world. Again, this means that we know what eternal life is, and if the first time you ever heard about eternal life not being about how long life is, as, as much as it is about the quality of the relationship with Jesus Christ, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, you don't know what to do with that, come talk to me more. It's both of those things. There is a eternal quantity to it, but there's also this quality of life in this, with God through Jesus Christ forever. We need to know what that is. We need to know how that is connected to the gospel. And the question that I would have for that is just to say, do, does your life, does your life does our church have a spirit of hope in the eternal life promised by God? Is that what people know when they, when they see you, when they talk to you? Do they, do they see hope? And it's, it's hope that's grounded in something. It's not hope that's just, you know, hope in hope. We have this this hope that, that we know because we've experienced something. And what we've experienced is we've experienced the, the perfect love that comes from God. And we've experienced expressing that love back to God and back to each other. And we know the only reason we can experience that is because of what Jesus Christ did for us and us professing Jesus Christ as Lord and being made new by his spirit. And then the last thing here, as Paul reminded him, is reminding Titus that this, this, with the preaching with which I have been entrusted, 
that this, that this hope is manifested, this eternal life is manifested in the proclamation of God's Word. So through the proclamation of God's Word, we can experience eternal life now. Transformation. Becoming more like Christ. It comes from not just understanding more about salvation or understanding more about God's Word, but it's actually experiencing new life in Christ. But make no mistake, we need to understand, and the understanding comes through the proclamation. Paul writes about it in Galatians chapter 5 as the, as the fruit of the Spirit. We can experience transformation because we have within us this fruit of the Spirit, this love that we could not have ever had before. And he says it's manifested in his word, manifested through the proclamation, through the preaching. It shows up there. And I think that's the, the, the challenge for us. It's the challenge for us who are, who are Bible study teachers at this church. It's a challenge for us who are the pastors who bring the sermons at this church. And the challenge is this. Do we see that every single time we are preparing and every single time we are in a place like this, that this is a sacred moment that God has appointed? If your Bible studies, whether it's at this church or at another church or in your home, have just become these casual things where we forget that this is a sacred moment when God is revealing eternal life to us, we are treating the Bible with less respect than it deserves. We are diminishing what salvation is. We are diminishing what preaching and teaching and discipleship are. These are sacred moments. That's why even coming here every Sunday, and I'm talking to those of you who are, who are believers in Christ. If you're not, you know, it's a little different for you. But if you're a believer in Christ and you come here for worship, how do you prepare? Do you prepare as though you are going to be in the presence of God or you just kind of casually come in? Do you prepare that God is going to speak to you through his word? Or do you just come in and say, ah, let me listen, see what's going to happen? How do we prepare? How do we prepare when we go into any Bible study? What do we expect? And what are we experiencing? I know for many of you, I this is not an issue with you. You are hungry. You guys, during COVID, you guys were amazing. Some of you were like, I couldn't believe it. It's like, you, COVID has either bored you guys out of your gourds or, you know, you couldn't get enough Bible study. There was like 30 to 50 people that were, that were in Bible study on Sunday morning. They were at worship. 
they were Monday night, they were Wednesday night. If I offered a Bible study every night, which I probably couldn't have kept up the pace, there would have been a core of 20, 30, 40 people there all the time wanting to know the Word, hungry for the Word. I know a lot of you are there, but I know a lot of us have kind of, we, we don't see these as sacred. We don't see these as revelatory, as, as the manifestation of, of eternal life. And, and we need to be able to, you know, figure out why. Is God's word just, is it just too esoteric, too obtuse? You just can't really understand it, so you're just kind of here? Or has it just become so mundane and so basic? Or is it some other reason? I don't know. But I would ask that you would would understand that if we attach all of this, that we are to be on mission as His church, that every opportunity we have to open God's Word is an opportunity to better carry out that mission. And that's our prayer. Our prayer is that each of us and all of us together are better equipped to fulfill the mission God has for our church.